Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> And welcome to Diffusion, the international science show. If you like your science fresh, interesting, uncluttered, unprejudiced and relevant, join us for the next half hour and enjoy the sensation of your mind expanding as we pour it into your brain. In this edition, John August and Steve Maxwell will talk about ancient structures, Irish or otherwise. Charles Willock will look at biofuels and whether or not they reduce global warming. And I'm going to revisit some crazy ancient and modern units of measurement. What more can I say except my name's Watmore, Lachlan Watmore. And first up, we have the news with Patrick Ruby. As soon as I hit this button there, like... There we go. All right. Desktop computers help the search for extraterrestrial life. The Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, or SETI, project has recently been upgraded. The project uses the Arecibo telescope in Puerto Rico to detect radio signals emitted from distant space. The incoming data is then processed across many different computers to detect any patterns that might indicate intelligent life. By processing data in this way, the computers act together as one supercomputer, capable of analysing vast amounts of information. This distributed computing project is known as SETI at Home, and has already been in use for eight years. The Arecibo telescope has now been upgraded with more sensitive receivers and better frequency coverage. It can now record 500 times more data than before, which makes it 500 times better at detecting intelligent life according to Chief Project Scientist Dan Wertheimer. But this means it needs more desktop computer space to analyse the data. Currently 5 million volunteers have signed up their desktops to help analyse the signals. The new upgrades will generate 300 gigabytes of data per day. SETI at Home has been funded and supported by many organisations and donations from individual volunteers. The Distributed Computing Project technology has also been used by other scientific projects. These include Folding at Home, a project designed to predict the 3D shape of proteins, and Cosmology at Home, to create a model of possible universes. An Expedition to a Tropical Glacier An expedition to catalogue the history of El Nino has been announced. It will go to Puncak Jaya, a 5,000-year-old glacier in the country of Papua New Guinea. The island of New Guinea lies on the fringe of the Western Pacific Pool, a crucial centre for the warm water that generates El Nino disturbances and influences global climates. The expedition will be led by Lonnie Thompson, an American glaciologist, in May to June 2009. Thompson was awarded the National Medal of Science at the White House last July for his contribution to the study of the history of Earth's climate. This might be one of the last chances to study the Puncak Jaya, the glacier has shrunk from 7 square miles to just 1 square mile in the last 150 years. Researchers believe it might disappear entirely in a few decades. Accompanying Thompson will be several other climatologists who will investigate the effects of recent climate change on New Guinea. A new cancer treatment from the sea. Salinospora tropica, a marine bacterium, produces a compound that kills cancer cells. The compound is called Salinosporamide A, 
and is synthesized by a special enzyme in the bacterium called Sal L. It binds irreversibly to a biological target in a cancer cell. The discovery was made by a team of researchers led by Bradley Moore, a professor with the University of California, San Diego, in the US, and Alessandro Ustacchio, a postdoctoral researcher at the Salk Institute for Biological Sciences. The key to the success of salinosporamide A is a chlorine atom found in its molecular structure. The chlorine atom is incorporated into the compound from non-oxidized chlorine, which is contained in seawater. Salinosporamide A is in phase 1 clinical trials for use in treating multiple myeloma and other cancers. It is also possible that the future genetic engineering of the bacterium will produce new versions of the salinosporamide A compound to treat cancers. And finally, parasitic butterflies mothered by ants. The Maculinia alcon butterfly uses ants to feed its larvae. The butterfly larvae have a waxy coat with a similar chemical makeup to the larvae of Momica ants, according to David Nash of the University of Copenhagen, Denmark. The butterfly larvae hatch and feed first on plants. They then drop off the plants to the ground where they are picked up by ants and carried back to the ant colony. Here they are fed as if they were ant larvae, and because they are bigger than the ant larvae, they are actually fed more. But if they are not taken back to the ants, but if they are not taken by the ants, the butterfly larvae cannot feed anymore and die. Researchers observe this parasitic behavior can cause a drop in the ant population because their own larvae are missing out. If the ant population is too low, the butterflies will switch to another Mimica ant species. However, the ants are fighting back. Ants exposed to the butterfly larvae evolve more complex waxy chemical coats so that the butterfly larvae are less likely to be mistaken for their own. The butterfly also evolves to mimic the more complex coats and so the species are engaged in a struggle for survival. And now we've got John August and Steve Maxwell talking about ancient astronomical structures. Anyway, our next, our next port of call is the Newgrange Passage Tomb in Ireland, and that was built 5,000 years ago. It's older than Stonehenge or the Egyptian pyramids, and it's aligned so that... Those light... Irish are always telling us that. What's that? That yeah. they're older than everybody else. Oh, well... It's only made 1,000 years ago, come on. Oh, well, I think there, there's, there's good good well, reason to believe it's that old. You know, the, the potato famine, they built that then. They had a lot of unemployment at the time. You know. <laughs> well, I do it's remember I years. do remember this, uh, yep. th- this, this sort of cartoon long ago, which um, you know, had this field you know, with a few rocks strewn and there were a bunch of people sort of moving in with, um, you know, with crowbars and whatnot and the caption underneath read, Early work on the Grand Canyon. Okay, so anyway, yes, so light gets down there. So the Irish invented television. Well, I'm not going there. Uh, Anyway, the light reaches down the passage for 17 minutes for just one day of the year, which is the winter solstice in the morning. And, you know, it's interesting that they had a a sense of how the sun moves through the sky that they were able to sort of build. get any sun on Ireland. Well, I suppose they had enough to, to be bothered like to build. It's different then, wasn't it? Five thousand years ago. Yes. Well, that's true. Climate might have been somewhat different then. Maybe they had had a lot. Romans more sun. had sandals on, you know, in the middle of winter. Yes. So the but um, you know that's one of the things the sun does actually go 
through the sky and you know the shadows rotate as it moves through the sky and uh, you know some time ago I actually wrote a sundial computer program where you could get out a compass sort of figure out where the where the sun is and sort of I think it's whether add or subtract 10 degrees for the you know the compass bearing in uh, up in the sky yeah so the compass bearing of uh, that, you know, the magnetic uh, distortion around Sydney and then knowing the day you could type it in the computer program and it would tell you what the time is and that's your sundial effect um, so basically, you know, the sun sort of basically starts at a certain location, moves across the sky, the shadow rotates, and, you know, that sort of yeah. has the same rough pattern from day to day. Cheaper than trying to get the time on the... on the. You ever tried to get the time on the telephone anymore? They don't give it to you. Oh, they do. 1194, it's, it's 40 cents a call. It's, it's 40 a, cents a call? Yeah. yeah. Cricket to ask somebody. It's got a watch on, isn't it? Yeah, well, well, it's one of the old things, you know. Rather than looking things up, it's always easy to ask someone who knows. But yeah. I suppose sometimes we have to we have to look things up. Um, now, so so one of the things about the sun is that on the during the winter solstice, it's actually very low in the sky. It's as low as it ever gets, right? So the thing to keep in mind is it's not just. Um, you know, where the sun is as it rotates around, you know, the, the pivot that does your uh, does your sundial, it's going to actually have a, an actual angle that only happens once. So if you sort of basically drill a hole of that angle, then only light will only get down that hole when the sun's in that particular position in the sky. Once a year, though. Well, once once a year, if you're talking about the uh, winter solstice, because the thing is that the sun it's actually got these arcs, these sort of well vaguely parallel arcs, and what happens is they sort of the arcs sort of move. Um, which direction is it? Um, in the southern hemisphere, they move north till the solstice, and then there's a single trace that they do at solstice, and then they start to come back. So the point is. A given, apart from the solstice, where you only give a, get a given shadow once a year, in the other ones, you will actually get that same shadow twice a year. Once oh, when right. it's moving towards the solstice, and a second time, the rough, roughly the same corresponding day of the year when it comes back. Right? So you will actually have a twinning, um, uh, basically, because of, the, because of the progression of the sun. It goes, it goes towards the solstice, stops, and then comes back again. But the, the line of the solstice will only happen once a year so uh so but that's that's sort of the motion of the sun and i guess it's something that we that is lost to us because we don't have reason to reflect on it and you know long ago basically the uh the winter solstice was like you know the the, the shortest day of the year um you know basically this was the worst things got and after this it's a turning point and things get better so you know that's the the theory on on on, on how things are actually better then so, you know, that's dependent, some of... Th dependent on how many virgins they sort of sacrifice to bring back the sun, is that it? I'm not sure about that one. Uh, you'll, have, you'll have to sort of do your own research on that one. That was John August talking with Steve Maxwell about ancient astronomical structures, Irish or otherwise. <laughs> That's the bottom line Yeah, I have a lot 
Dave Dobbins with Slice of Heaven, a song I really like. Um, I decided to move camp for this presentation and uh, come to you from my kitchen uh, because I wanted to talk to you about uh, some different units of measurement. And here in the kitchen, of course, units of measurement are all the rage. 
Uh, last time I spoke about octane numbers and things like that, but I thought I'd talk to you today about some interesting units of measurement which you probably haven't heard of. For example, have you ever heard of the micro-Einstein? Well, a micro-Einstein is defined as a unit of light energy concentration which is used in measuring the flux or density of light or any form of electromagnetic radiation. The micro-Einstein is equal to 10 to the minus 6 Einsteins or 1 micromole of photons if you want to put it into a, a volumetric analysis. The density of photosynthetically active radiation, for example, is reported in micro-Einsteins per second per square metre. So that's a micro-Einstein. By contrast, a micro-micron is a former name for a millionth of a micron, that is 10 to the minus 12 metres, a very, very short distance. The name Bicron is also used for this unit, but these days it's called a picometer, or a picometer if you prefer. Now, you might have heard the expression, I'll be back in the shake of a lamb's tail. Well, the expression shake, the, the term shake, is actually an informal unit of time in nuclear physics. A shake is defined as equal to 10 to the minus 8 seconds, or 10 nanoseconds. It originated in nuclear physics uh, when they were building the atomic bomb. In an atomic explosion, fast-moving neutrons break apart atoms of uranium or plutonium, and the fission of these atoms releases additional neutrons which keep the reaction going in the famous chain reaction. The shake is the approximate lifetime of an individual neutron. So the uh, neutron, as it flies through space before it hits another atom, is the, the time it takes from it to leave... The time it takes for it to leave one atom and go to another one is called a shake. Talking of shakes, shakes frequently hold shekels, and shekels are an ancient Hebrew unit of weight, uh, and also a coin having that weight. The shekel was the Hebrew version of a Babylonian unit used throughout the Middle East. Uh, there are different accounts as to the size of a shekel. Frequently quoted is uh, 252 grains, which is approximately 0 0.5760 ounces, avoirdupois, or about 16.33 grams. But others, other sources say that a shekel has got a different value again. So that's a shekel. Uh, one of my favourites is a Torino number. It's an arbitrary scale adopted in 1999 to express the likelihood that an asteroid... And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us with feedback, Turin, comments, suggestions, wild, passionate praise, proposals uh, of marriage, that sort of thing, uh, a, a then send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or you can subscribe to our podcast on our website, which is www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were John August, Steve Maxwell, Patrick Rumby, Charles Willock, and yours truly, Lachlan Watmore. I produced and I panelled this show right here in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and will broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network and internationally, of course, on our podcast. So join us next week inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. No, no, you want the baker, mate. Down the street. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. No, they were gay. All right, bye. Sorry about that. Now, where was I? Oh, yeah, the drachma. Finally, I'd like to talk to you about the drachma, which is a word I've heard throughout my entire life and have no idea what it is. A drachma is a traditional unit of weight in Greece and the Eastern Mediterranean.
The drachma was a Greek coin, and the unit was originally the weight of the coin. In ancient times, this was about 4.3 grams, but more recent versions are about 3.2 grams, which is equivalent to 49.3 grains, or 0.113 ounces avoirdupois. There's also a traditional Dutch weight unit of the same name, but it's somewhat larger. That's at 3.906 grams, uh, which is 60.28 grains, or 0.1374 ounce avoirdupois. Compared to a similar English unit, the Greek drachma is about 2.5 pennyweight, and the Dutch is almost exactly 3 pennyweight. I think I'm going to have to get back to you about pennyweight later on. So there's some funky little units for you. Hope you've enjoyed this, and now back to the studio. Some of you who have small children may have perhaps been put in the embarrassing position of being unable to do your child's arithmetic homework because of the current revolution in mathematics teaching known as the new math. So as a public service here tonight, I thought I would offer a brief lesson in the new math tonight. We're going to cover subtraction. This is the first room I've worked for a while. It didn't have a blackboard, so we will have to make do with more primitive visual aids, as they say in the ad biz. <laughs> Consider the following subtraction problem, which I will put up here. 342 minus 173. Now, remember how we used to do that. Three from two is nine, carry the one. And if you're under 35 or went to a private school, you say seven from three is six. But if you're over 35 and went to a public school, you say eight from four is six. And carry the one, so we have 169. But in the new approach, as you know, the important thing is to understand what you're doing rather than to get the right answer. <laughs> Here's how they do it now. You can't take three from two, two is less than three, so you look at the four in the tens place. Now that's really four tens, so you make it three tens, regroup, and you change a ten to ten ones, and you add them to the two and get twelve, and you take away three, that's nine. Is that clear? Now instead of four in the tens place, you've got three, because you added one, that is to say ten to the two, but you can't take seven from three, so you look in the hundreds place. From the three, you then use one to make ten ones, and you know why four plus minus one plus ten is fourteen minus one, because addition is commutative, right? And so you got thirteen tens, and you take away seven, and that leaves five. Well, six, actually, but... <laughs> The idea is the important thing. <laughs> now go back to the hundreds place. You're left with two and you take away one from two and that leaves... Everybody get one? Not bad for the first day. Hooray for new math, new math. It won't do you a bit of good to review math. It's so simple, so very simple that only a child can do it. Not the answer that I had in mind, because the book that I got this problem out of wants you to do it in base eight. <laughs> but don't panic. Base eight is just like base ten, really, if you're missing two fingers. <laughs> Shall we have a go at it? Hang on. You can't take three from two. Two is less than three, so you look at the four in the eights place. Now that's really four eights, so you make a three eights, regroup, and you change an eight to eight ones, and you add to the two, and you get one two base eight, which is ten base ten, and you take away three, that's seven. Okay? Now instead of four in the eights place, you've got three, because you added one, that is to say eight, to the two, but you can't take seven from three, so you look at the sixty-fours. Sixty-four. How did sixty-four get into it? 
I hear you cry. Well, 64 is 8 squared, don't you see? When you ask a silly question, you get a silly answer. From the three, you then use one to make eight ones. You add those ones to the three, and you get one three base eight. Or in other words, in base ten, you have eleven, and you take away seven, and seven from eleven is four. Now go back to the 64s. You're left with two, and you take away one from two, and that leaves... And finally, the news that didn't make the news. The viability of biofuels as a means of reducing global warming is coming under attack. Charles Willock has the story. In 1995, Paul Crudson, Mario Molina and Sherwood Rowland shared the Nobel Prize for Chemistry for their work in the formation and decomposition of ozone in the upper atmosphere. More recently, Paul Crudson and a group from the Max Planck Institute for Chemistry have published a paper in the Journal of Atmospheric Chemistry and Physics Discussions, 1st of August 2007, which deals with the breakdown of fertilisers to nitrous oxide and the impact of that on global warming. In essence, the issue is this. Nitrogen-based fertilisers are necessary to produce crops for biofuels, and that is especially true for crops which use poorer quality land not currently allocated to food production. A small amount, some 1-2% to of the fertiliser, is broken down by soil bacteria to the gas nitrous oxide, N2O. We know from the work on the ozone layer that nitrous oxide reaches the stratosphere where it is converted to nitric oxide, NO, and we know that that has a significant impact on the stratospheric ozone due to its ability to catalyse the ozone-oxygen reaction, thereby reducing the ozone level and, amongst other things, creating the ozone hole. However, nitrous oxide has another effect. It is also some 300 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than CO2. And, in the longer term, some 3-5% to of fertiliser is converted to nitrous oxide. The problem then is that taking the biofuel production process as a whole, for some crops, far more warming is caused by nitrous oxide than can be saved by burning fossil fuel directly. Thank you, Charles. And it looks as though things aren't quite as easy as was first thought in the area of biofuels. More research, quote-unquote, obviously needed there. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us with feedback, comments, suggestions, wild, passionate praise, proposals of marriage, that sort of thing, then send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or you can subscribe to our podcast on our website, which is www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were John August, Steve Maxwell, Patrick Rupey, Charles Willock, and yours truly, Lachlan Watmore. I produced and I panelled this show right here in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and will broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network and internationally, of course, on our podcast. So join us next week inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Kumbaya.